0: Welcome to the Unseen Unknown podcast. I'm Jasmine Bina, and this is my first episode with my partner, Jean Louis Rollins. We are the founders of Concept Bureau. If you've come to this podcast, you've probably come to us through our writing or our videos, our content. We wanted to create this podcast, however, as a place to showcase conversations. A lot of times, the content that we create is about how to do brand strategy or new thinking in the field or understanding why people behave the way they behave, and how to leverage those understandings for your own brand strategy. But we have some really interesting conversations with the people that are inside and outside of our sphere. And that's what we want to capture with the Unseen Unknown. We're going to bring in people who are experts in the brand strategy domain, and people who are experts in other domains, and try to make sense of what we're seeing in the world collectively. That's what the name Unseen Unknown is about. It's the belief that if you can't see it, you can't know it. And there are so many patterns and trends and frameworks and systems that are existing right now that are creating the machinery of this world, but we don't understand them yet. And because we don't understand them, we can't really know how to use them for our purposes. So... We're going to bring in interesting people every time, but you're going to see a format where every month we launch two episodes. One episode will be with Jean-Louis and I, where we try to, you know, talk about something thought-provoking that gets you to look at the world a little differently after you listen to the episode. And then the second episode will be with an expert, where we talk about things like user behavior, identities, cultural narratives, um, anything that's new and happening in different spaces and verticals that could relate to our understanding of the world. And for this first one, Jean-Louis and I talk about the big questions. We talk about where are we in the state of brand strategy right now? How is the modern consumer evolving? What are the current frontiers in branding? And I mean the not obvious stuff. Like, what are those really what-if edge cases? That's what we wanted to explore. You know, if you had to do thought experiments in this space, what would they look like? And so much of brand strategy is about creating frameworks, something that you'll hear in this episode I didn't always believe in when I first started my career as a brand strategist, but now I'm a complete proponent of. But... What makes a good, reliable, effective brand strategy framework that you can use to come to a a solid answer every time? So this one's a bit more brand strategy specific, but we do expect the podcast to evolve over time. This was a great conversation and I hope the first of many, enjoy. Mm Jean-Louis, I've been working with you at Concept Bureau for at least three years now. Yeah. You have completely changed the way we do everything when it comes to strategy. And so I think you can handle a big question to open this up. Okay. Okay. So where are we in the state of brand strategy right now?
1: Okay. It's an interesting question. I think kind of like whether or not you appreciate what brand strategy is and kind of like how it operates in some way or another a lot of people are asking themselves this question. The way I see it is that if you kind of take a very macro view and you look at kind of like you go all the way back to like before 1950 even you can see that there's a kind of a very linear progression going from features to benefits to experience and really kind of behind all of that is this gradual uh, moving up into what people are buying as stories and brand as opposed to the products. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I think one of them is very simple. It's just the mechanics of brand is that you used to have so few brands that when you bought something, everyone knew what that represented about you. Um, and it was very clear that you bought a Rolex and the features of that Rolex said something about you. Now, if you buy You know a modern d2c brand if you don't know that brand then it doesn't make a statement about you and so really it's not the features anymore that define what you buy it's it's the brand it's the stories around them
0: i tell this to people and either they i think gloss over it and, and and think they really understand that or they just don't believe that people have untethered themselves from buying actual products i think in some spaces we're still buying products but those are spaces that haven't really been disrupted yet. When you are buying something from Hims, when you get a membership to the wing, when you you know, buy Ritual Vitamins, any of these things, you're truly just buying a story.
1: Well, I think one way to look at it that is maybe an effective lens is that when you think about there are just so many companies out there. How do you make that decision? This is kind of where the brand becomes important. The brand has become a proxy for how to figure out who to trust. And so in that view, yes, you may still be buying products at the end of the day, but it's the brand that is letting you make that decision of who to buy. And I think that's kind of the important distinction where it's, they, they have a world view instead yeah. of just a product view. And so when you decide like, okay, I want to buy vitamins, there are so many places to choose from and it's overwhelming. So you have to find some kind of proxy and maybe you find it in the reviews, but you know, the reviews are always couched Mm -hmm. in some other narrative. And so like at the end of the day, your biases will always lean you towards something and it's the brands that you end up picking that Mm -hmm. will make that decision for you.
0: So truly, you really believe that it's the worldview that helps people make these decisions?
1: Yeah, I think like it's, you know, as we see a lot of brands, especially CPG brands, kind of move into content, what they're really doing is they're moving into culture. They're having a cultural narrative and they're starting to shape these things. And that's the story. It's the sort of who am I in this world? And that's what brand is addressing. And I think there's kind of one interesting point here, especially in Western societies where you have the middle class is pretty much one of the only demographics globally that is not seeing kind of an increase in wealth that everyone else is. Mm -hmm. If you're at the very bottom of the economy, there's a very good chance that actually things are getting better at some rate. You know, minimum wages are broadly kind of like creeping up slowly. You know, there's a lot of kind of pressures to have more programs to support them, there's that. So if you're at the bottom end of society, things are going well in in a developed society. If you're at the extreme top end, we all know the stories about wealth inequality. And then if you look at developing economies, you have the same kind of story. They're actually doing much better. The rate of progress is really there. But in Western middle class, you have a kind of a rate of decline instead. And so- So
0: you're saying around the world, generally speaking, there is this, this overall growth, except for when you come to- a place like America, and if you look at the middle class, we're not seeing that.
1: The relative income, like income has been going up, but it's not been going up to match inflation. Is it
0: just income or are you talking about happiness too?
1: Well, I think it kind of, everything sort of goes hand in hand. I mean, my view is kind of economics sort of defines the world we live in. And so happiness is to some extent a function of that. But if you look at the cost of goods and services, you look at just the overall, the macroeconomic picture, it's not just kind of have incomes gone up, it's are we working more or less? You know, is, is that money carrying us more? And the bottom line is everything's gotten more expensive and relatively, if you're in the middle class, you're earning less. And so- And
0: also would you say probably a sense of security has gone down too when it comes to finances?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it, it, there's so many different things. And so kind of within that, there is some kind of search for meaning that is maybe more prevalent in, this group of people but in lieu of not having kind of the the growth and prosperity that kind of does that for you. So I think there's definitely, su- there's a cultural subtext there towards mm-hmm. brands. And that's maybe why, in at least in my view, that we look for brands that kind of insert meaning into things in a way that maybe we didn't before.
0: That's interesting. It's kind of dovetailing with something that I talk about a lot. And finance is one of these things. But generally, like, our cultural institutions have started to crumble and evaporate. I've said this in yeah. many times in different ways. You know, education, the institution of marriage, uh, the career ladder, financial stability like you're talking mm-hmm. about. So it's your hypothesis that because we're losing meaning in a lot of these things that used to hold meaning for us before, we're open to hearing a new world view or to purchasing meaning in some ways from brands, like we're giving them permission to go into that space.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And like, uh, I think another axis of that meaning is this, um, the notion of belonging. If you look at brands, it's kind of interesting where we're starting to see that the value of engagement in a lot of these brands is kind of more important than the value of awareness. They, They know that once they get a core community around them, that community will be so engaged that it's kind of more economically viable to focus on Keeping that engagement of the community rather than kind of drawing awareness. And the subtext of that is what they're doing is they're building tribes. Mm. And that's kind of another source of meaning in our lives. And that, that's like a very fundamental evolutionary mechanism that, that addresses us. And it, it's become really prevalent. If you look at a lot of these brands, it's the communities that have created value for them. And a lot of M&A kind of reflects that, that it's these organic tribes that drive much larger valuations for these companies. Like mm. that's that's the source of value there. It's it's almost having the people. That's why when they have cultural conversations, it's they're able to show those values and actually connect with an audience. That's why content works because you're touching culture and because you're able to kind of create a worldview that people can kind of let's talk about around. that.
0: Let's talk about content. There is content that touches culture and reflects culture. Mm-hmm. Then there's content that sometimes, if it's done right, can actually create culture.
1: I think we're at a turning point right now. I think we're kind of at a expansion point in branding where... There are so many new ways. Like we know that like the mechanisms to reach people and more and more is, is content. And a big part of that is because the cost per acquisition for ads is just getting increasingly expensive and increasingly competitive. And so the best way to do it is organic. So it's actually a pretty good return on investment in the long term. But yeah, I think we're still figuring out how to do this effectively. It's kind of like when you look at um, partnerships with influencers mm-hmm. you know, or YouTubers, we're still, to some extent, some people have done a pretty good job of finding that balance of how to create an on-brand advertisement or, or connect that. But that's definitely the minority, and we're still figuring that out. And I think this is definitely an expansion point where people are trying a lot of things. And over time, we're probably going to see a few of these things work quite well. The challenge is obviously, it's one thing to kind of have someone say, I, I, I like this brand, I trust this brand. It's another thing to kind of have a standard format for how to discuss culture. So I think it, it, it will always be evolving to some extent in terms of the the type of conversation, the tone and the way it's told. But as a... As a a kind of primary channel for a lot of brands, I see that as being very fundamental moving forward.
0: I think that's something that a lot of times when we speak with companies, it's easy for them to miss. You can't contribute to a culture or to a tribe if you're not experimenting. You -hmm. can create like a six-month or 12-month plan, but you're not creating content that's moving anything forward yeah. It, the brands that push conversations forward are the ones that I think consistently will end up on top. I mean, provided that you know the product mm-hmm. fits the market and everything like that. I think um, one that I've really been impressed with lately has been MailChimp with all that, the, the whole new content studio that they've developed mm-hmm. in-house and the short form documentaries that they're creating and that amazing podcast with Shirley Manson and you know a lot of the multimedia content that they have. If you really look at it, you know, they are you, – you you were asking yourself, like, how, why is an email management platform <laughs> creating content hmm. that's touching on such, like, deep human emotional values? If you listen to these stories on the macro, you start to understand that they are talking about entrepreneurship. Yeah. And they're saying that entrepreneurship and risking something is a very important part of the human experience.
1: No, for sure. It, it, it's such a – like, when you really think about what's happening there, if you – watch these things or listen to these podcasts and kind of really internalize that, you are using that as a vehicle to kind of define who you are as a person. That's an incredibly intimate relationship you're having with a brand that didn't really exist to that extent before. Before the people would tell you, what they do and and how they are. And maybe they would go as far as to say, kind of tell you who you are for buying these products. Mm -hmm. But now like it's going kind of more and more internal into kind of this very intangible world of kind of worldview and values and kind of like, who are you? Who am I to you? Those sort of questions. That's, That's kind of a very big progression from where we used to be with brands. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate the magnitude of that.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of brands don't appreciate the magnitude of effort and vulnerability that it takes mm-hmm. to actually do that. Yeah. And I know that from experience. <laughs> and like that's that's a huge takeaway. If you're not willing to take risks in order to just inch the conversation forward a little bit, then you're really missing an opportunity.
1: Well, I think in some ways you can't, you know, if the function of these conversations and kind of defining culture one way or another, whether you do it through content or not, is to create a tribe and create an identity around a worldview. You know, if your worldview is something everyone can agree on, it's not really a worldview worth, you know, that defines you, that that Mm -hmm. can kind of specify that. And so to some extent, if you're not on the edge of something, you might as well not be having that conversation at all. You know, if it's not controversial, then it doesn't matter if you identify with that to some extent.
0: Something related to this that I want to ask you about that I want to make sure we cover in this podcast with you and future guests too is we understand the market, or we we hope we do. (laughs) We understand um, how the climate is changing. What about the consumer? How is the consumer themselves evolving?
1: Yeah, I think it's a really kind of interesting question And kind of builds on you know, what's changing in, in brand strategy, it's responding to how the consumer is changing. For sure, the way I see it is is through the lens of Maslow's hierarchy, where for a long time, products were about survival. Then for a long time, they were kind of about belonging and acceptance and kind of moving up into esteem. For a very long time, the pinnacle of a brand was providing esteem to you. And and mostly that was in the form of luxury. Mm. You bought a Chanel bag, and, and that was kind of it was valued because it gave you esteem. And what's interesting about esteem is really what's the value that's being provided is in everyone else's view of you, or at least the perception of that. And I think where we're moving now, which is very interesting and is markedly different is kind of at the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization. It's kind of who can you become? And the difference there, the, the important distinction is esteem the kind of the permission is given by everyone else to you. Mm-hmm. And in self-actualization, you're giving it to yourself.
0: Yeah, you touch on something here that I think is hard to articulate sometimes, but I see it with luxury. Why are luxury brands struggling? And it's it's because they're failing to adapt to the fact that we're all moving up the pyramid, mm-hmm. right? They're still stuck in esteem. And it's hard for these brands to really have a worldview, that can lead to some sort of self actualization when your entire heritage is about craftsmanship and like we've been around since eighteen oh whatever and you know highest quality and you know artisans and things like that.
1: At the very fundamental, I think the mechanics of how esteem has worked has been scarcity. It is valuable because so few people have access and therefore it must say something about you. And now if you look at the model of like, okay, where are we seeing scarcity emerge? Right. Mm. If you look at Supreme and these limited collaborations, there's still scarcity, but it's not because of cost it's because of access. Mm. And so you can, you participate in the luxury economy because you were there at the drop or you bought it on a resale market for a huge premium because it just came out. And so scarcity still exists, but it's kind of evolving there. I think that's the one place that we're seeing some success, but for sure elsewhere, like it it just, the luxury market kind of falls apart because the values are like, if, if health is the new luxury, There's no scarcity is is not a mechanism of that.
0: Yeah. I gave a talk on this at a graduate school in Paris, and I got a lot of pushback from students who did not like it when I discussed this very same thing. And I, you know, I'm not saying that luxury is going to crash and burn, at least traditional luxury in the form that we know it today, like Mm -hmm. the Chanel's and Dior's. But I do think that if they don't start to evolve, there's, there's it's gonna be a slow, painful death. Um, I think they can coast for a while, yeah, on what they have. But you know, look at something like Gucci. they've 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 gone from an interesting place where before they were like all these other brands a gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. It was about the same kind of scarcity, the same kind of authority and being at that level of the hierarchy in Maslow's triangle. But now they are collaborating with all of these cultural keystone people, all these movers and shakers, and they're expanding the brand so that it's malleable. Yeah. You can actually literally play with the fabric of the brand. And they're adopting the worldviews of these incredible collaborators that they're working mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. And that's how they're adop- adapting. And I, I think that's actually kind of profound and worth applauding. They're They're evolving in the right way.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think one kind of industry, which is a good kind of microcosm of this is athleisure. If you look at a lot of the kind of traditional incumbents that have gone into athleisure, it's really an extension of the same story. There's an aspirational lifestyle and it's generally a kind of to some extent, inaccessible costs, so that there's some scarcity there. And what's kind of interesting is if you look at outdoor voices, which is coming at a very different angle, I think Tai Haney, the, the founder, said something along the lines of our real competitor is people's image of their own body. Now, that's a completely different value system. Mm-hmm. They're kind of coming at this, and you can see the, the breaking point here, where you have the aspirational lifestyle is an extension of the model of esteem. It's aspirational because of how it's perceived. The value exists because of how everyone else is seeing it. And if you live that lifestyle, then they see you a certain way. Whereas when you're saying your own perception of your body, that's kind of within you, you know, the, 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 uh, the external voice is not a stakeholder in that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's still important. It's definitely still a subtext to a lot of these things, but the, the values have shifted. And I think that's where the modern consumer is evolving. That, that would be, you know, a big part of my answer is that we are moving towards self-actualization and that in itself is evolving, but the values there, I think is very important to delineate that we are moving away from esteem Mm -hmm. and into kind of ourselves being the stakeholder. And so back to our earlier point about content and worldview, that matters suddenly a lot more because if self-actualization is kind of discovering your potential, then education and kind of informing people of how to find that and and kind of those new values become very important to do that. And and this is, if this is a completely new behavior set that we're emerging into, then we need tools to kind of enter that world. Mm -hmm. I think the second response to how the consumer is evolving is I have this thesis that we are kind of, currently living at peak complexity. My kind of analogy for this is that if you look at how many decisions you make a day, right? And you kind of map this out over a hundred years before and a hundred years into the future, right now, Technology so far has increased the number of decisions we make. We kind of have so much more information that we have to flood through. You know, it's not only like, how do I get to work on time? What road do I take? What do I wear because of the weather? You're also kind of like, what do I share on social media? Who do I share it with? What are the hashtags? Is this kind of on brand for me? You know, what is the information I consume? There's this kind of endless hosepipe pipe of stuff being blasted at you. Can
0: I make a little comment on the social media Mm -hmm. piece? So, um, I don't know, like a month ago, it was suggested to me that I just take a day off Instagram and I'm very (laughs) active on Instagram. I love creating stories. It's like my one favorite creative outlet every day, Mm -hmm. you know, crafting things from my feed. I really engage with my readers. I pose questions. I share my life. I talk about brand strategy a lot. But I took that day off and, you know, I understand people talk about like, okay, get off social media so you're not always comparing yourself. Fine. That's one thing that that can lead to kind of like, it's it's an emotional burden, but I didn't realize how much like creating content for Instagram Mm -hmm. was freaking exhausting. Yeah. So many choices you have to make so much creative thinking and deciding what to include, what not to include, how you're going to tell the story. It's actually a really complex process yeah. to create something valuable on Instagram that will only be watched 15 seconds at a time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I got so much time back, but also my attention because it fragments your attention mm. so much. You're paying attention to it throughout the day, like every hour. It really just shreds apart your time. Yeah. And it's like an invisible form of complexity that I think there's so many different forms of invisible, invisible complexity in the world. And this is one that's that I think we're all experiencing without realizing.
1: Absolutely. There's a huge kind of decision fatigue, which really is kind of draining your emotional energy and your ability to handle everything else. And you, you can look at news a similar way where you have so many headlines now are, um, the word that I hate the most is slams. You know, this person slams this person. <laughs> it's like no, they they made a statement, and you know they have a strong opinion. Okay, like they're sensationalizing it to hijack our emotional energy because that gets attention, and that's the kind of the 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 unit uh, economics of news. That's that's how that industry operates: is clicks, which is attention. And so, yeah, like I think more than ever there are more decisions that we have to make every day like we have climbed the mountain of peak complexity but the reason why it's the peak and not just kind of like an ascension to an even higher summit is you know i truly believe that now that the world is this complex it's created a lot of economic incentives to bring that complexity down Mm. we are looking for things to tell us what to do what to buy how to operate what to watch we are looking for aggregators and i think the easiest way to see this is if you look at the influencer market. Mm -hmm. We now use influencers, to some extent, as a proxy for a lot of our opinion-making and decision-making.
0: Okay, let's let's pause on this for a second. The huge consensus, the first half of the conversation that the world is having about influencers is that we aspire to be like them. That's why we value their opinion. But you're saying that there's also something else going on that we're not paying attention to and that they are actually making the world less complex for us.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You will have, and I I truly believe that in, you know, 10, 20 years that you will probably be able to walk up to someone and say, you know, like, who are the, and they may not see it this way in themselves, but you can ask them, who are the five, 10 people that you follow that define your opinions? And one way or another, they will have an answer to that. Mm. And it'll be, you know, there'll be different buckets. There'll be who do you follow for political opinions or who do you follow for fashion advice or who do you follow for kind of like how do you navigate um, your opinion around the climate change issue and, and these kind of things. Like One way or another, we're starting to use these people as a proxy because there's just too much information yeah. to sift through.
0: Yeah, and we're really thirsting for it too. I think mm-hmm. it was Chris Dixon. I, I, I follow his newsletter. I think he used the one that who's, who said it that the way he deals with that is that he just finds his trusted aggregators. Yeah. And re- and that was years ago, and before I think we even had a real consciousness around the word influencers, and that's basically what he was saying, Your are trusted influencers.
1: Yeah, like if, if we were to paint a picture, and maybe this is a bit techno-optimist, but um, in 10 years, there's a good chance that with self-driving cars, one big bucket of decision-making is gone. You know, the, we're now with Alexa and a lot of these kind of shopping AIs starting to get to a point where instead of kind of the onus being on you to sift through hundreds of products, they're able to kind of be much more smart mm, about their recommendations. I'm not entirely sold on that. Well, maybe not now, but I think we're you starting- You know what I'm not
0: sold on that? Because those voices don't have a worldview. I would rather see what the founder of the TOT is recommending for laundry mm-hmm. detergent for my kids than to ask Alexa what laundry detergent I should get for my kids. Because Alexa doesn't share my interests, but the founder of the TOT absolutely shares my interest for sustainability, for safety, for all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I totally hear you. The way I see it is that in, in a sufficient amount of time, you're going to start seeing those things automated and aggregated. I, I I definitely believe that in 10 to 20 years, it wouldn't be surprising at all to see kind of a chatbot to kind of like, you know, take who you follow and recommend mm. shopping decisions based on what those people buy.
0: Oh, God, that <laughs> that would be so amazing because even like, going through the influencers' recommendations, Mm -hmm. the influencers that I follow, is a task.
1: Yeah. Well, this is the thing. I think we're starting to see that there is so much value now in decreasing complexity for ourselves. And so we're probably within a give or take 10-year window of what could very well be the most complex time in all of human existence, both past, present, and future. And so, you know, when you look at that, then, you know, how is the modern consumer evolving? To go back to your question, it's definitely this complexity axis is, is defining a lot of decision making. And kind of the subtext of this point is that what you actually have is the platforms a consolidating influence. Because if you look at Instagram or you look at Amazon with Alexa and you look at these different platforms, suddenly by using these proxies, you're having your decision making controlled by fewer and fewer stakeholders. And really kind of to some extent on Instagram, you have to ask, how much is Instagram as a platform facilitating this and kind of incentivizing certain kinds of behaviors versus the influencers themselves? Because you know, how visible the advertising is, how well they can kind of do product placement without it appearing as product placement, the line between having uh, an opinion and endorsing something, you know, for a paid deal, those are really under the control of Instagram to set the terms and the culture for that. And so to some extent, what we don't realize is we're giving up a bit of our decision-making power, actually quite a lot. And this kind of, this is the problem brand is kind of the carrot but a lot of these influence techniques and you know right now we have targeted ads and people don't appreciate how incredibly effective targeted ads are you cannot waste a cent on advertising to someone who's outside of your target demo it doesn't mean everyone's going to buy but it means that the only eyeballs you're touching are the ones that are Absolutely primed, you know, and, and it's becoming far more sophisticated. And to think that it'll stop here is kind of to, to not have studied history.
0: Yeah, and we all know, I mean, you and I have both experienced this. We'll be talking about something. We could be talking in the middle of a damn forest and we'll mention <laughs> socks, you know, yeah, like, uh, yeah. I don't know, like Fruit of the Loom socks. And then once we get back to the city... We're gonna start seeing ads for Fruit of the Loom Mm socks. Like mm -hmm. we all know, like we're not only being watched, but we're being listened to.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think it's you know one one way. There's kind of another way this plays out. It's not only the kind of targeted ads and everything. There's another mechanic, and I think it's especially visible in sneaker culture, Mm -hmm. where you have, if you look at what people are doing, right? You have Kanye West who wears a pair of sneakers that makes a statement. And people talk about that because it's culturally relevant, there's something going on there, it draws attention. And then you have these people who are by no means influencers, you know, have a small following, but what they're trying to do by participating in the kind of the sneaker market and sneaker culture is play by the same rules As these influencers that they follow or these celebrities. They're buying these sneakers to make the same kind of statement that let's say Kanye West or whoever is is, is making. Now they're making the statement to a very small set of people who maybe will appreciate that, but they're trying to play by the same rules. And I think we can't underestimate how much this culture around influences is kind of trickling down to the layperson, because right. to some extent, it's still very aspirational. Um, I read about a study recently where so many people, just average consumers, will buy clothes, wear them once for an Instagram picture, and then return them. You know, influencers—they <laughs> get sent clothes. They do that. That's I'm, part I'm of their living.
0: Pretty shallow when it comes to Instagram, <laughs> but even I have not done that.
1: <laughs> but this is this is. The Wait, so regular
0: people are doing this? Regular
1: people. <laughs> It's trickling down, you know, these behaviors people are trying to emulate and I don't I don't think this is sustainable in any way I think this is kind of maybe a fad. I, I read recently about, you know, this is kind of There's so many lessons in history you can learn if you just study it And what's kind of fascinating is most people don't appreciate that after the printing press was invented There was kind of a hundred year period of intense conflict around religion and all these things because suddenly information was so much more readily accessible now most people have no idea that happened but with social media you know you have a radical change of social norms the radical kind of Increase in the availability of information in a very short period of time. And it is, shouldn't be no surprise that we're going through a similar growth period where there is rapid change and not necessarily in a positive way. There is, there's arguably a lot of conflict. I mean, you know, we don't need to get into how, you know, there's, there's all these influence campaigns that are very subversive using social media, but just in the, in the context of brand and how consumers are changing, this is absolutely kind of, a critical moment where we're redefining what norms are. And mm. to some extent, a lot of these things might be very unsustainable. And so they'll reach a breaking point and have to change. But this this kind of the economics and the lifestyle of influencers defining kind of like the aspirations for brand and that trickling down to the lay consumer, that's probably something that won't or can't last, you know. There's so much friction and tension and pressure for consumers, uh, you know. And there's definitely already starting to be a bit of a counterculture emerge mm-hmm. around this. I don't think anyone knows where that's headed, but I think it's kind of something to keep an eye on in the sense that this is a very dynamic playing field that is changing rapidly and you just, there's always this frustration where people see how everything has changed so much before us and assume that it won't change as much in the future. And if history has taught us anything, it's only going to change more. And so when we see how all these norms are changing, we're not reaching a new plateau. We're kind of exponentially accelerating. And with these new technologies that are, again, going back to that peak complexity point, becoming proxies for decision-making and consolidating that influence, that's only going to accelerate. And so... As far as how people are evolving, you know, it, it's that self actualization piece. And, but it's in, in the context of an incredibly dynamic environment that almost year to year, you need to touch base on. And also industry to industry. Uh, You know, a lot of what we talked about is kind of relevant for fashion, but when it goes to workplace culture and how kind of uh, business consumers are changing, you know, it's a completely new set of things. It's also evolving at a rapid pace and is also arguably moving towards self-actualization. But the one kind of constant is that things are changing very aggressively. Okay,
0: so as an example, what do you mean about what's going on in, in business and workplace culture?
1: Well, in that environment, it's very much about upskilling. Well, there's, there's a few components. One is kind of upskilling. People, going back to our early point, people are looking for meaning. Uh, okay,
0: just to be clear, upskilling, you mean like taking a workforce, giving them new skills so that they're basically mm-hmm. upgraded or, or or more sophisticated in their skills for the future of work?
1: Yeah, yeah. But I, it, it's not as much, or at least my take is it's not so much about The kind of economic potential it's more the meaning component there is there's a lot of studies out there right now that kind of show that people are willing to make pretty significant compromises in income and kind of um where they live and and living quality because they want to pursue meaning they want to pursue jobs that are more fulfilling even if they pay less and so yeah
0: you and i have seen this in our research a lot so we've mm-hmm. worked with a lot of companies that are in the workspace or in the workspace space or in the skills space Right. it's something having to do with people evolving their their professions and we see this a lot like work has become the new religion and not in the kind of funny tongue-in-cheek way where like you know we're worshiping our bosses and like slaving away at our at our desks but truly that where we used to find meaning mm-hmm. in religious systems, we're kind of looking for that same meaning in work systems now and that's why we're willing to upskill ourselves to be lifelong learners and to jump ships so frequently between careers yeah. and jobs sometimes taking a sideways step or a mm-hmm. downward step because it's the meaning that we're thirsting after
1: yeah 100% and so it's 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 a similar kind of thing if you look at that it's less about esteem and it's more about self-actualization the kind of the the value goes inwards and it goes like how do you want to feel purpose.
0: You know, the thing about this self-actualization is that business owners really need to keep in mind that this really destroys a lot of the systems and frameworks that they still take for granted. Mm -hmm. People still assume, in the workplace example, I can see even founders that we've spoken to still assume that people are motivated by better jobs with better pay. Yeah. And that's just not true because we're not – look. Well, well, remind me again what was underneath the uh, self-actualization. Esteem. Esteem. We're not looking for esteem anymore. We've leapfrogged that. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking for self-actualization, this career path of like moving, you know, getting better at your job, getting a promotion, getting a better job, more money, better promotion, go to a different company, better yeah, job, more yeah. money, better company. That's not the path anymore because we're not driven by esteem. And you cannot underestimate the fact that when we're looking for self-actualization, so many of the old rules don't apply. Yeah. Okay, so this is all really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. I hope you didn't already <laughs> tell me the answer to this next question. I wanted to ask you, where are you seeing some exciting things? Like if you could, you're very much a, a futuristic person. You're, you're a futurist. You love to speculate about where the world is going. What are some of your like really fringe ideas that can somehow be traced back to brand?
1: Well, I think one of the kind of more interesting areas is we, we spoke about tribalism and community. And this is be- starting to become such an important part of these brands is really kind of this is how you construct your identity. And so... There are some brands that are doing really interesting work here, but we're still very much at kind of this this Cambrian explosion of new formats of like how to handle and run communities. And there's so much more equity that's sort of tapped into that, that we need to extract or or brands need to kind of find a way to pull out. One example that you've written a lot about is The Ordinary Mm -hmm. and how there is this incredible amount of organic engagement where... They don't tell you how to use their products. And so the community has stepped in and done that for them. And people have spreadsheets on how to use all these different active ingredients because they only sell the active ingredients. They don't sell kind of these these fully fledged things. You have to figure out what's right for you. And the product is very much designed in a way that it forces kind of community engagement. That's very, very interesting and quite unique to the skincare space. You, you're starting to see that around like New York Times does a really good job with their, their conception series and their modern love, love series. I love both of those series. Yeah, they're, they're giving a voice to this community or these communities to talk about the difficult parts of, of motherhood. and the-
0: Yes, that's a good example of a brand taking risks. Mm-hmm. And th- this is risky stuff that they're talking about. Very, very debatable meaning of life stuff and inching the conversation forward despite how deeply uncomfortable it is. Yeah.
1: But I think if you look at the mechanics of what's happening there, the New York Times is not telling you anything about what it's like to be a parent in the, you know, in the modern era or what it's like to have a modern relationship. They are giving their community a platform. And I think that's the difference there is that what's so evocative what's so powerful about that is it's not a gatekeeper telling you how to live it's them using their platform to really elevate that conversation Mm.
0: I would push back a little bit. They are still filtering the stories that get on there, and they're they are specific stories.
1: Well, okay, that's fair. That that there's definitely these aren't a like <laughs> stories
0: from the Bible Belt. These are <laughs> definitely like New Yorker, Southern okay, Californian okay. stories. There's,
1: you're right. There's a lot of editorial discretion, but I, it's just the the difference compared to older brands is the rules of gatekeeping have changed here. I think that's the point, and that mm-hmm. they are kind of creating a community around this, something that you can identify with. And you're absolutely right, it is a subset. It's a small group of people that that view it a certain way. That's definitely interesting. One thing I think is almost not as exciting as it should be is D2C, or maybe, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. It's just the story of D2C is a very old story in my eyes, where you have someone coming in with a single product that wants to be best in market, you know, Casper the very, very kind of the prototypical example of this, or even Wobby Pocket. They come in, they say, the industry is stagnant. There's all these problems. We have the new best product. Hmm. And they come in with one product and they try and win the market there and then expand horizontally from there. And we've seen this a lot. I think one of the problems is that people don't appreciate the economics of this is that it works really well in certain industries where there are gatekeepers, where there is a lot of stagnation.
0: And difficulty to change and a lot of like vested interests and like yeah. systems and things yeah. like
1: that. It doesn't mean it works for every industry. Well,
0: yeah, also like a lot of the um, advantages of DTC have totally started to disappear. Mm-hmm. Even like old companies like Walmart are starting to act more like DTC companies. People are getting really smart to the game I don't know that there are too many more built-in advantages to being a DTC company first anymore.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of, for a lot of startups, it's the de facto course, but it's not what it used to mean for a lot of people because a lot of the low hanging fruit has been disrupted but also if everyone's D2C then it doesn't have the same cachet as it used to you know everyone is saying that like we have something new and better and they're trying to be best in class in these very narrow fields and so it's kind of the mechanics have changed and if you look at some of the kind of the winners in the D2C market and you look at where they're going you know they're moving into content just like everyone else you know they're becoming kind of building their tribe and kind of having those mechanics. And DTC is really just not a sort of disruptive format. It's almost a de facto format.
0: Yeah, and I think we went through an uncomfortable period over the last couple of years where people were still being seen as disruptive by virtue of the fact that they had taken something that was brick and mortar and made it DTC. But that model is not disruptive.
1: Yeah. That's what they
0: were missing. Warby Parker, Hymns all these other brands, they didn't do well because of the D2C model. They did well because of something having to do with the product, mm-hmm. but more importantly with the brand.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. I'm gonna push you a little bit further. <laughs> I want more extreme edge cases. Okay. Like if we're really looking at the current frontiers in mm-hmm. branding, not the obvious stuff. Yeah. But those, like I said before, those real edge cases. If you had to do like a thought experiment about like something something really fascinating that may be on the mid to long term horizon, what pops into mind for you?
1: Mm. So I think one thing, like we know that brands can be really, really powerful and really effective at kind of changing mindset and pushing the cultural conversation forwards. What I don't think we've seen anywhere near enough of that absolutely there's so much opportunity for is brands that don't focus, uh, aren't built around businesses. Mm. You know, what I mean is, you know, if you take climate action, there is so much equity there to build grassroots brands. You know, a good example of this done right is the Me Too movement. There is a very discernible brand around that. There yeah. is there is a strong story, there's a cultural narrative. They've done very well, but you don't see a lot of Me Too's for other spaces or other issues, other causes that aren't economically incentivized by a product and kind of trying to capture some value. And so it's kind of interesting, like it, it's it's, something we haven't seen a lot of to create kind of grassroots brands There's grassroots action. And and definitely kind of a lot of organizations that spin out of these things, but not really strong brands. And,
0: you know, I, I suspect part of it is because people believe that a cause cannot be a brand. People believe that a cause should be enough, but causes are problematic. They inspire guilt, you know, like climate change, equal rights, you know, things around the family or children. They inspire guilt in the, sh- and, and that works in the short term. You feel guilty for a short period of time. You pay to have your guilt absolved in the mm-hmm. form of a donation, but you don't want to be freaking constantly reminded <laughs> of this thing that makes you feel guilty. And, you know, to their credit, the, the people behind these causes truly feel the, the need to make change happen, and they, they feel that the cause should lead. But I would encourage people to think that the cause is maybe a secondary message.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that to some extent, if you can change culture, then that sort of trickles down to everything else. And so the power of brand, like, I, I just don't think these people fully appreciate how effective brands can be at shifting the narrative and creating new norms. Absolutely, like, I totally agree that there's, there's way too much guilt in all of these different causes. And the the organizations that have created narratives that don't use guilt, they don't have strong brands. They haven't kind of built those vehicles. And I think part of it is that it's a kind of a tangential investment, or at least it feels that way, that in order to change culture, you know, maybe that means that you have to be, you know, playing strongly in the content space. Mm-hmm. And that feels like a waste of money when you should be spending money on you know all these yeah. kind of direct awareness exactly. things. But it's really kind of the short term versus the long term. And it's
0: missing the self-actualization piece.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When I give to Smart Water, or when I buy Smart Water, or any of those other water brands that you know build a well someplace uh, in an impoverished community, where's the self-actualization piece for me? That sounds so counterintuitive when it comes to cause-based issues, but that's how you captivate people, Mm -hmm. for better or for worse.
1: No, they need to tap into current values. If you look to Maslow's hierarchy to use that as a kind of lens, they're not even at esteem. They're down in the survival safety kind of bracket, Mm -hmm. and it's a completely different set of needs. And, you know, if they don't start operating like a modern brand. And the thing is, there's so much equity to do that. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, they are trying to change culture. In a lot of ways, they're kind of pushing things forwards beyond what a lot of these brands are doing. They're far more kind of high-minded and and aspirational in the good sense of like, this is what the world can become. The
0: the parallel here is they have a really good product. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They have a really good product, but it's not being branded correctly.
1: Yeah, so definitely as far as kind of like the the real front is yeah like brands around non-businesses i mm-hmm. think that's something interesting the other thing i i kind of been keeping an eye on is political brands okay definitely we're starting to see the kind of the individual brand really 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 become effective in politics and and that's something that that is definitely going to keep evolving one thing i'd love to see personally is we have this kind of demonization of people changing their opinions in politics. It's And it's so counterintuitive. The idea-
0: but, but what are you saying here? That we demonize people who change their opinions?
1: Absolutely. And there are so many studies that, that back this up, that, that if you have a politician that you like and they change their stance on something, even if it's to be more aligned with you, it's seen as a sign of weakness. Mm. And you'll strategically maybe not vote with them because you think everyone else sees it as a weakness too. It's really kind of... There is a very toxic brand around the fact that, as a politician, it's dangerous to evolve. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense. If there was ever a field where you would want to kind of change your opinions and evolve and be seen as a dynamic figure, that would be the one. And so, is this
0: only in America? I think it's.
1: I mean, I I don't. I can't speak for the world, obviously, but I, I definitely think it's something in the West.
0: Did you see it in the UK?
1: To some extent, definitely. To some extent, it's there. There's, there's there's definitely bias there. And I think it's a very fundamental thing about how we kind of see people. There's kind of, we put integrity over everything else and kind of, that's, that's kind of the wrong horse to bet on. So what I would love to see is to someone, to see someone build a political personal brand that accommodates their kind of personal evolution. That would be a very, very interesting So you're saying frontier. a politician
0: that creates a brand around the fact that they are constantly exploring, learning, and evolving their opinions. Yes. Ooh, you know, <laughs> I feel like...
1: It's a tall order.
0: Okay, here's the thing. I think people have a hard time letting politicians do this because they confuse changing your opinion with changing your values. Yeah. yeah. And that's what's difficult for them, especially in a two-party system. hmm Andrew Yang, kind of, I think, could be a little different here as a candidate. I think, I mean, I've watched him for a couple of years now, and I've seen him speak, and I've been a little involved in what he's doing. And he promises scientifically based, research based public policy.
1: Mm. Yeah, he's starting the conversation in a very different playing field, which is really refreshing to see that he's kind of bringing the conversation to where the evidence takes it rather than kind of coming in with a values-driven approach, which is really what the vast majority of, of of politics is about. It's kind of like, what are your values? And, and kind of like, if you support that, then you kind of go along with the policy. For most people, that's mm-hmm. kind of how they operate there. So that's, that's, yeah, definitely political brands. There's, I think, a lot of frontiers there. That that's really interesting.
0: You're right. That is one place where I don't know. I mean, I'd have to really think about this. I don't know what it would take to change people's perceptions around that.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's such an entrenched... Bias. Yeah. Okay.
0: So I'm going to move this conversation forward. It it, it relates to what we've been discussing here because if you look at things like, you know, politics or the Maslow's hierarchy that we've been talking about or this idea of non brands, when you want to approach these things and create new strategies that actually change perceptions and behaviors, Mm -hmm. we've learned over and over again, it has to start with a framework frameworks are tools that we use to deconstruct why something works the way that it works and reconstruct something that works in a different way, the way that we want. That's so much of brand strategy. And you actually taught me this (laughs) when you started working with me at Concept Bureau. I, you know, we, this business was very different. It was very creative. I'm very much a storyteller and an artist. You come from an engineering background. You studied Mm -hmm. aerospace engineering, like that's your profession. And I remember it really rubbed me the wrong way that you could take something that felt very human and organic to create a brand, to create a story and apply these very stark principles on it. And of course I was wrong. And you know, this is what strategy is. It's building these frameworks. So I'm gonna ask you what makes a good, reliable, effective, strategic framework?
1: Mm. (laughs) That's a big question. The way I, I mean, I always try and approach these things from a very kind of first principles standpoint. So my process is kind of always the same, regardless of what I'm sort of working on when it comes to strategy, which is that there is a phase at the beginning where you want to explore every possibility. It's kind of this this vast expansion. There's everything that can be done. There's maybe everything that should be done there's everything that you you would want to do that strategically makes sense, but you really want to start kind of factoring in everything. And so you start with expanding all the possibilities, you know, whether you're exploring kind of the cultural frontiers or you're exploring like the product level decisions, it's always, you know, what is possible and then finding a mechanism to contract that down.
0: So you're saying a good framework will let you go super wide mm-hmm. at first, and then give you a device for going very narrow again.
1: Yeah, I see it as sort of an oscillation where at every stage of kind of gathering insights and making decision making, you have to take into account sort of all the opportunities, all the possibilities, and then contract that down to what should be done. And then again, from what should be done, what is the extreme range of consequences of that? And then again, condense that down. And so it's- it's Can you give
0: an example of what that might look like?
1: Okay, so if we're talking about the education space, for example, what are and we're t- t- talking about the the cultural frontier of this? Sort of, where are we headed? There are so many different cultural narratives that we may want to play into in this space in terms of maybe we go with themes in terms of the future of work. Maybe we work against the narratives about work and talk about the individual. Maybe we talk about the actual experience of learning. Maybe we talk the,
0: about the materials, the yeah, coursework, yeah. the teachers. The philosophy behind teaching, the history of education, it can touch on so many different things. How we gather in spaces, even, or, you know, the meaning of the classroom or different learning styles, Mm -hmm. as an example. Okay, so it can go super, super wide.
1: So, we, yeah, you need to kind of, like, get this macro view of, like, where is everything headed? And then within that, see kind of, like, what are the interesting points? Like, where is there real equity to move things forwards or or to be part of that forwards trajectory. Because some of these things just happen as a consequence of things changing. Some of these different changes or trends in culture are leading these changes. Mm. And so where do you want to play? And so when you figure out where you want to play, then you have a subset of, okay, these are the cultural narratives. And then for example, what you may do is you may look at, okay, what are all the kind of equity we have in our product and our community in terms of a brand? Like where are all the points of value that we have? So you would explore all of those different things and then you would condense that down into, okay, what are the points of equity in our brand that we have that our competitors don't have that kind of are a little different, that are kind of like give us room to grow and evolve that are in the trajectory of where new value is being created. And so kind of in line with inside of, the cultural trajectory is kind of what is the brand equity we have in our product. And then, you you know, you do the same thing looking at your audience and you would find, okay, where, where, what is their trajectory? And so all of these things, you're kind of expanding and contracting down until you get to the kind of the art of it. Cause to some extent you can systematize a lot of these things. You can get a lot of the insight building and the criteria for a brand to be, fairly scientific but there is always a bit of a leap and maybe i haven't come up with the right framework yet but there is a bit of a gap between knowing what the brand needs to do and then finding the narrative to sort of artistically express that
0: yeah well we talk about this all the time i think that's where the art meets the science so Mm -hmm. when you've done all of your strategic work you will ideally end up with a catalog of like this is how our brand needs to operate. It needs to do this, 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 and this. It needs to work like this, 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 and this. It needs to change this, 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 and this. You don't want nine answers for all the things it needs to do. Yeah. You need to find that one answer, that one mechanism that answers all of those nine things. Yeah. That's the artistry. It's finding that one piece that solves so many different problems that you've surfaced in mm-hmm. the strategy research and development. Yeah.
1: And, and just to add to that, I think once you get to that central narrative, like this is the story, this is the kind of the belief and the values of the brand, that's kind of the contraction of that entire discovery phase, kind mm-hmm. of creating the criteria, having a very strategic belief and worldview. And then, you know, you get to the same thing again, then you have this huge expansion of, okay, this is all the ways that we can express that, this is all the ways we can have this conversation, all the ways we can turn that into experience. And there are so many different ways. One of my favorite mechanisms for kind of discerning a good strategy from a bad strategy, there was a great article in the Harvard Business Review, and it was a very, very simple anecdote that worked so beautifully. It was basically that if the opposite of your strategy is not a strategy, then you don't have a strategy. and So and, many
0: people don't. <laughs> so many people hear that and just don't get
1: it. Yeah, I mean, the example I think they gave was looking at some kind of service company. and s- I
0: remember the example. It was a financial, I think it was a financial services company that said, we are going, our strategy is to give the most competitive products to our customers with the best service. Yeah. And the opposite of that would be, we would give the least competitive products to our non-clients, with the worst service, but that's not a strategy. So <laughs> no you one's going to do so that. So you don't really have a strategy to begin with.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if that's not a strategy, then not, yeah, no one's going to be moving in that direction. Because a
0: strategy is not a best practice. A strategy is how are we going to do things in a way that we can own and carve out a niche for ourselves in the market that would be hard for others to follow.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's, it's, it's always a good heuristic just to kind of, to measure these things by. And you mentioned a good point about best practices and it's definitely kind of in the latter stage of a brand strategy where best practices become really, really effective. But yeah, at a, at a very broad level, kind of going back to the bigger question that kind of around, you know, how do you create a framework? There is a lot of, Sort of science, very form, uh, a lot of formula that you can provide to get all the insights and condense them down. But there's definitely just that last sort of 5% of knowing what it needs to do and then knowing how it does that. That to some extent, that's the value of the experience, you know, having someone who's experienced in this and knows that. And best practices can guide you, but. There is always that little bit of a gap. Uh, it's, the,
0: it's the last mile problem. Yeah, Getting to that last mile, it, there are systems and ways to get there super efficiently. Mm-hmm. But making that last mile happen is full of friction yeah. and it's super hard.
1: Yeah. And I think if we could figure out a formula for that last one, then uh, that would be AI coming to eat our <laughs> jobs soon enough.
0: So to wrap this up. I think this was a great conversation. What a lot of people don't actually know about you and me is that we're not only partners in Concept Bureau, we're partners in real life. You're my husband. And we met about three and a half, four years ago now. I had started this agency before I met you for a number of years. And then you came and completely changed everything for the better and just completely changed the way. I approached things the way I saw brand strategy and really just took this company to the next level. And that's also when I started publishing a lot too. And people ask us all the time, like, how do you do it? Like, I could never work with my (laughs) wife or husband. And it wasn't easy all the time. We definitely earned our stripes. I'm very, very strong-willed and passionate (laughs) is the (laughs) word I would use. And you are also equally strong-willed and passionate about your ideas as well. So I'm going to ask you not just about working couples, but to create a true partnership. Because so many of our clients that we're meeting more and more of are actually founded not by an individual founder, but by co-founders. So many huge, amazing amazing business successes of our times have co-founders behind them. And that's a very intimate relationship to have someone because you're literally building a life together, in many ways. What is your advice to people? I don't think I've ever really asked you this. <laughs> like, what is your big takeaway from this huge experiment that you and I have undertaken?
1: Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's it's a big question. I think what makes it especially difficult in terms of what we do is the fact that it's creative work. Mm-hmm. If you were two accountants working together, it'd be a very different story because, you know, you could argue there's creativity in accounting, but the point is that with creativity, you're really, you're putting your your ego on the line. You're saying, you know, I have this idea. What do you think about it? And they're not always good ideas. And, you know, like the, the, the process of collaboration often requires shooting people down. And if you don't do that, then you don't have an effective culture to, to work in. And so to some extent, I think one of the biggest challenges is ego and it's not easy, but learning to kind of separate your ego from a lot of these things, because the bottom line is you have a shared goal mm. you're working towards that shared goal. And the thing that gets in the way is the ego. It's not anything else. Usually it's usually somehow you've hurt my feelings in one way or another. And we pretend like it's, you know, creative differences, whatever, but really, you know, I think a lot of disputes come down to that. So, Ego, I think, is, is definitely a, a big part of, of working well together, trying to get rid of that, trying to create a culture where you're almost encouraging that. I think the more you encourage failure, the more you kind of can throw things at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah,
0: that word too. I've never been good at failure, ever. And I have always had a fixed mindset that I am only as good as I am and I constantly have to prove that to the world. Mm-hmm. Instead of a growth mindset that believes that, I can get better. I you know accept that I'm not at the level I want to be at, but I can get better. And I've really had to push myself out of that mindset in the course of my career. And working together was kind of like a crash course in that. But creating an environment where you are constantly failing as part of the process, failing by design, I think people get that on paper when it comes to like product dev yeah. or UX or things like that. But we never think about it for when it comes to interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. or professional relationships
1: yeah no definitely and I think a part of that is that it's it's not a true failure to some extent or not a valuable failure unless you can pause and reflect on kind of that experience and how to move forwards from it a lot of the time you fail and it's frustrating and it dings your ego and you know it creates that little bit of tension and that just kind of continues under the radar. And, and I think part of it is that you have to kind of get back to that point, especially if there's some contention where you can kind of realign on values and say that like, you know, we're like, you know, or at least, you know, when you have that success after those failures that you have that kind of alignment and that shared vision, because otherwise you're sort of, you can be working against each other even though you're trying to do the same thing. So, I mean, yeah.
0: I think also framing the failure. I know in the beginning of our working relationship, I saw failure as failure, period. But now we've made a real habit of when we look back at our failures, we look at back at them in a grateful way, kind of fondly. Mm-hmm. You know, we we laugh about it or we tie it to like, oh, because of that failure, we went to this whole new space and we had this other success. It's how you perceive the failure that I think matters. And that's a habit that you build. Yeah. With your partner it's not something that comes naturally mm-hmm. you have to constantly recontextualize what it means to not get it the first time
1: yeah i think the soft way of addressing it is to call it iterations and that's really <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. And i mean in branding that's what we do and i think what we have found over time is that the more we do this work the more like you need to kind of get it wrong because then you'll only that's the only time you'll find out what's right a lot of the time when we're dealing with an executive team and it doesn't quite feel right. That's the first opportunity they have to actually articulate what it is that is right. You know, if you don't have that, if it's always like, yeah, this is good. Yeah, this works. That's the worst possible thing. It's the same kind of situation. There's always this anecdote that, that I appreciated where, you know, the, the worst people to work with are the B players. So the the A players are all-star, they're great, you know, they do the work and they're fantastic at it. The C players are so bad that you get rid of them straight away. It's the B players that aren't quite bad enough to get rid of. You know, that's a little, I mean, that's more about kind of hiring and employees, but it's the same kind of attitude where like, if it's, if you think it's not quite bad enough that it needs to be addressed, that's probably absolutely when it needs to be addressed.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah. I would also say, just as a last note, you know, working for people who maybe are thinking about working with their partners, it's very, very hard. But if you can get through the hard parts, it's extremely rewarding mm-hmm. and worth it. Because, you know, imagine if you could take your successes at work and have them have a halo effect over your personal life, too. Yeah. And that's that's the benefit of this. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I think this is a good place to wrap up the interview. We explored a lot of interesting things when it comes to branding. Hopefully, this has set the tone for what people can expect from the unseen unknown. We have a lot of really interesting people who are on the roster for interviews that are coming up. Thank you, Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: Jean-Louis.
0: And talk to you again soon.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Thanks.